all have needs and desires and seek to discover our own erotic journey. You've come to the right place. This is Seek, Discover, Create with Lexi Silver, presented by SDC. In the next hour, we're here to answer your burning questions about relationships, sexuality, and health from the leading sex experts and professionals. Now, here is your host, Lexi Silver. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to SDC Presents Seek, Discover, Create. I'm your host, Lexi Silver. And as usual, we have a very lectual show for you all today. We're going to be talking about something that really hits home for me. So my mission with this show is to help guide and educate each of you to explore your lectuality without guilt, shame, or judgment from yourself internally and from other people so you can make informed decisions about your sexuality, your relationships, and everything else in a way that's meaningful to you. So I'm especially excited to introduce my guest today, Raheem Thar. He's taught a fantastic workshop at Sex Down South in Atlanta, and he had a killer keynote about sexual fluidity. And the entire time I was listening to him, I was just thinking, holy hell, I need to have this guy on my show. So here he is. Raheem is a registered social worker, psychotherapist, and consultant who focuses on a harm reduction, sex-positive, anti-oppressive, and trauma-informed approach, providing psychotherapy to newcomer, racialized, queer, trans, and HIV-affected communities around issues of anxiety, depression, trauma, body image, and problem substance abuse. So he has a very unique perspective on shame and guilt to share with us all as we explore with the differences between shame and guilt, how we develop those feelings, the ways in which they can manifest in our everyday lives, and how we can cope with and overcome some of those feelings. And later in today's show, I'll also be answering some questions from you, the audience, during my Letters to Lexi segment, so thanks for sending those in. If you want me to give you lectual advice, with the bonus help of my special guest or guests each week, write into me at Lexi at SDC.com and connect with me on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Lexi Silver. That's Lexi with an I, Silver with a Y. Now, before we start our chat with Raheem, I want to thank our sponsor, SDC.com, your and my expert source of exclusive information about sex, health, and relationships, where you can also access the world's largest lifestyle dating platform. Use my special promo code, 77 to get two months free at sdc.com that's 7070 to get two months free at sdc so get ready to fearlessly and shamelessly embrace your lectuality with Raheem and I let me tell you a little bit more about my special guest today Raheem Thar is a registered social worker who works as a psychotherapist on a family health team in Toronto Canada and as a consultant in private practice he supervises masters of social work and counseling psychology students and a taught as a post-secondary instructor at George Brown College, Centennial College, and Ryerson University. He developed curriculum for a number of courses in Centennial College's Addiction and Mental Health Worker Program before its launch in fall 2016. Raheem is also a co-editor of a local history anthology entitled Any Other Way, How Toronto Got Queer, which was shortlisted for the 2017 Toronto Book Awards, and he is part of the National Core Organizing Team with Salam Canada, an LGBT Muslim organization. Welcome to my show, Raheem. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thanks for having me. Oh, this is great. I really had so much fun meeting you at Sex Down South. And I, I just felt like you were such a perfect fit for all this shameless sex stuff that I always love to talk about. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That was my first time actually being at that conference. So I was kind of blown away with how uh, sex positive the whole thing was. Oh, it definitely was. It was, it was my second year going. And honestly, I think every year it gets better. And at the fact that you were there for the first time and and you were a speaker and you presented. <laughs> that is pretty big. Thank you. I really, I really enjoyed it. And it was uh, a good learning experience for me as well. Yeah, for me too. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the presentation that you gave a little bit at Sex Down South. Um, sure. What motivated you to choose a topic that concerns shame? What made you want to talk about that? Um, I think often I think about mental health and what comprises of it, like what constitutes our mental health. And if we think about our experiences day to day, sure, we could, we could sum them up or talk about them in terms of like anxiety and depression uh, or sadness, happiness. But what we don't often talk about are like these deeper, more complicated experiences of envy, guilt, shame, um, jealousy, grief. And so I'm really interested in all of the moments and context and people that bring out our shame, bring out our guilt. Um, and so I'm thinking about mental health in more of a, more of a dynamic way, you know, um, as much as anxiety and depression are important to talk about, I don't want to reduce uh, sexuality to that or our experience of mental health to that. Um, I also, like, as a racialized gay man myself, I feel like um, I have internalized so many messages that I have to unlearn, and um, <clears throat> talking about them as internalized oppression is limiting. Like, people talk about internalized oppression from a very, like, systemic perspective, but I'm thinking about, like, interpersonally, how do negative internalized messages show up in my daily life? So that's where, that's what gets me interested in talking about and thinking about shame. Oh, wow. And we all, I think, whether we realize it consciously or not, have dealt with and learned all of these things that make us then feel the internalized shame. That unlearning process, though, is so hard. And it's a lifelong battle, I would say, especially if you're consistently surrounded by people who are reinforcing those things. Yeah, I agree. I think um, we live in a culture that benefits off of our shame because if we feel bad about ourselves, if we feel inferior, um, then we can be sold certain products. Um, hierarchies of power can be maintained. Um, there's a larger system that benefits. And so I, I, I would completely agree with you that it's a lifelong process to dismantle to dismantle the impact of shame. Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk, I think, a little bit more in depth about that afterward. Yeah. But for now, I think when I talk to people about shame, I notice that there's a very common misconception that guilt and shame are the same thing. <laughs> and I really just want to kind of pick that apart with you a bit because you have such a great definition for each of them. And I just I want to get your perspective on that. What would you tell people how to differentiate the two? Right. I, yeah, you know, I, I should start by saying that I think there can be an overlap between guilt and shame. Guilt is usually 
um, activated by one's own moral compass. So if you think you did something wrong, like for example, you went to a store and you, you stole a loaf of bread, maybe you feel like I did something bad or I did something that's wrong according to my own moral compass. Um, guilt lets us know that we did something wrong and can, you know, motivates us to correct it. But if I stole that loaf of bread and instead of saying, you know what, I did something wrong, I turned around and said, hmm, of course I made this, of course I did this, I always do this because I make mistakes. I am driven to make mistakes. In fact, I have a deficit. I'm inferior. I always make mistakes. If I think about myself, my identity as less than or inferior, that would be shame. So in a sexual or sexuality context, it might be um, somebody trying something sexually that they're not completely comfortable with. That might bring about some guilt. But if somebody wants to have sex and then they have sex and then afterwards they feel like, Ooh, I shouldn't do that. That makes me really slutty. To me, that sounds a bit more like shame, right? Because morally, they haven't really done anything wrong. That is something they wanted to do in the particular moment. Um, so it doesn't mean that they can't feel guilt, but I think likely they're struggling with shame. They feel like they're supposed to be a different kind of person, and because they did this particular thing, they're a more inferior person. Does that make sense? Does that distinguish it? It totally does for me. And I think as we progress through this episode, it's going to become more apparent when we're talking about shame, exactly what that constitutes. So all of these things are learned, right? We're not born feeling these things. We're not born understanding morals and, and all of that. That's, those are things that are learned. So where did all of this come from? That's How did question. <laughs> <laughs> I like asking the easy questions. Of yeah, course. yeah, yeah. No, that's good. I um, well, you know, it's learned. So it comes from our social environment. I think it's important to recognize shame as being an interpersonal uh, experience. Um, you know, you might feel ashamed if you do something in secret or somebody else doesn't see it. But by and large, you feel shame because of how you think you're being evaluated by somebody else, right? So you can experience shame in a small way. You can experience embarrassment, discouragement, shyness. Those are all like smaller versions of shame. But you can also feel like all-encompassing shame, right? So when we think about where it comes from, you know, let's say I, I fart in public. <laughs> you know, I'm going to know to feel embarrassed about that, which is like a small version of shame because... I know that people might look at me funny or people might look at me with a bit of disgust. I know that it's not socially acceptable to do that. However, if I'm in a, let's say a sexual setting, uh, you know, I'm flirting with somebody or I try to ask somebody out on a date and I get rejected. If I interpret that or I come to experience that as a rejection of myself as a racialized gay man, if the first place my mind goes to is, this person's not interested in you because of how you look or how you show up in the world. You're not good enough, right? Then that would be, not only would that be an experience of shame, but that would be a kind of, that would be an understanding of the rejection that I learned from my environment. Mm -hmm. So growing up or over time, I would have had to have learned that some bodies, some identities, some skin colors are not just more valued than others, but they're more celebrated than others. And so I think it's, from our social environment that we learn to be ashamed of ourselves. And that could be like in your core family unit. It could be through your siblings. It could be through your peer group, but it could also be through television and magazines and, you know, larger media outlets that we all consume. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's probably all of those things in some combination over time, right? And so we kind of learn these things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's so many things that were almost taught to be ashamed yeah. of, like yeah. not, you know, not being fit, whatever right. that means. There's just so many different things, but those are common mm-hmm. in the media. Once you are exposed to all of this, you learn all of this. It's just over the years, you keep getting these things reinforced mm-hmm. by other people around you. Is it even possible to get away from those sources of remi- those reminders of shame? You know, I think it's possible. Lots of things are possible. (laughs) I like to think that as a therapist. Um, But we're all living in a world where we want to be accepted. We likely want some proximity to power. um, And we want to feel good about ourselves. So if there's a larger dominant script, a voice, if you will, that tells us, um, you know, or, or sells us the idea of how we can be happy and love ourselves, we might buy into it. So we might not be prepared to unlearn certain things, right? So to go back to your earlier question, you know, where does shame come from? We're socialized very early on to know what's good and what's bad, Um, you know, and you brought up this idea of being fit. You know, I know lots of adults in the workplace who will offer you a piece of chocolate and they'll say, ooh, I'm being bad today, right? (laughs) Like, what are they talking about, right? If they want to have something sweet, they should have something sweet. But they can already anticipate that they might be judged for the choice that they're making. And they've created a whole social narrative around it, right? They're going to battle it with humor. They're going to be defensive um, by giving you a disclaimer. They've been socialized for a long time about what's good and what's bad. You're right. It is superficial. It affects a lot of people, but it is superficial. You know, I think about, you know, being queer, for example. What if you're socialized in a community that tells you who you are, who you love, who you're attracted to? That desire itself isn't just bad, but it makes you a bad person. Yeah. That's a hard thing to unlearn. So it's not that you can't. I just think it's hard. I also think another, I'm going on a bit of a, I'm snowballing here. I love it. Snowball away. It's winter. Let's do this. Let's do it. Um, I also think there's lots of experiences we have as young people that are really hard to make sense of, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if somebody experiences um, sexual abuse or like a general boundary violation as a young person, right? So what I mean by that is you trust that you're going to be safe and you'll be taken care of in the proximity of somebody like an uncle, a family member, a teacher, etc. right? You have an experience, an attachment experience of what a trusting relationship should be. And if that person betrays your trust, well, it might be hard for you to sort out in your psyche um, whose fault that is, mm-hmm. um, what you can do as a form of recourse. Uh, for a lot of people, a non-shared experience where you have this kind of boundary violation is something you often keep to yourself. And because it feels bad, the only way you know how to make sense of it is by blaming yourself. And so what that translates into is a lot of shame about you think about your person, yourself as the person who caused something like this. Mm -hmm. I also think a lot of kids um, experience shame when they're, when their parents get divorced I think a lot of kids don't know how to make sense of it necessarily. And so the common way to make sense of it is, you know, uh, maybe it was something I did, Mm -hmm. right? And I know that from working with children who said, 
um, mom and dad sometimes argue and I think it's my fault. So I'm trying to be extra good so they don't argue as much, right? And, and you can see how a child is internalizing this idea that they could be the cause of something really catastrophic. And so something really bad happens and they attribute it to themselves. I think this contributes to shame, you know? So they're going to go on in life thinking that they have this power to inflict harm on themselves and other people. That's a, that's a really heavy burden to carry around. And in, in all truth, I, I don't think unlearning that or undoing that is simple, really, right? It's complicated, so complicated. Well, there's, there are a lot of tears to it, but, you know, you mentioned, you know, as kids, we're so plastic, we're spongy, we're plastic, we pick up a lot of things and a lot of things that are not even necessarily told to us directly that we're learning through the way we're watching other people interact in the environment. And we're just ingesting all of this information, some kind of subconsciously, we're not necessarily understanding what is going on, because we're too young. But over time, some things come out and you're like, wait, why, do, why is that wrong? Why do I feel this way? Yeah. So that, that's really a huge disconnect though because you're going from a period of time in your life where you're just kind of almost sort of trying to be happy-go-lucky as a kid, hopefully, you know, you know, hopefully trying to navigate around the world. And we have these parents and these families and, and uh, you know, um, our teachers and everything who maybe think we don't understand everything. So they'll have conversations in front of us and they'll say things and it'll yeah. stick somehow, something in the back of your mind. Yeah, it's really important to have good support uh, during that time and have people who can help you make f- you feel good about yourself mm-hmm. as a person. Totally. You know, you reminded me of something. I think another medium or way that shame develops is a skewed understanding or um, a non-delineated understanding of the difference between privacy and secrecy. Mm. So, like, for example, masturbating is something that's completely natural and normal and, you know, pretty much good for you. Um, And as much as I would agree that it's probably something that most people do in private. I think a lot of people understand it as something that's secret, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's, a, that's an interesting distinction because it's not that if something's private, it just means that like it's something you do by yourself or you don't share widely. That's just about a social norm. Yes. If it's a secret, then I imagine you fear like there's a consequence from sharing that or having something about you found out. Mm-hmm. And I think people have, they confuse privacy and secrecy when it comes to, I mean, masturbating, sex in general, uh, talking about their specific desires in when they're in a relationship. And if you're thinking more every day, even finances, mm-hmm. you know, family finances, family secrets. So I think, I think that's another way that, that shame can develop. Um, I know a number of people who told me in therapy that when they tried to come out to their families, their families were on the surface like, oh yeah, we accept you, but don't tell other people in our family. Hmm. So it's really interesting. They're using this language of keep it private for your safety, but actually what they want is for it to be kept a secret, which reinforces shame, right? We don't want you to tell other people the same because there's something wrong with who you are. And so that, I think that's one of the ways shame develops. 
And I love that you actually mentioned the masturbation thing because I actually, we're going to unpack that a little bit because there's a lot that I want to say about that, especially as it relates to sexual shame uh, over time when you're older. Those early experiences that you have when you're young and you're exploring your body and having someone tell you that's wrong or don't do that, that's Mm -hmm. bad. So I want to get into that a bit because I think like probably most of us have had at least one moment that we either experienced it ourselves or have witnessed someone else experiencing it. But hold that thought. So just for now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about an awesome sex ed resource other than my podcast, which is sdc.com. It's also the world's largest sex ed platform. And you can find loads of info about health, sex, and relationships. And you can watch videos, listen to podcasts like mine, and read articles from professionals all around the world, like Dr. Jess, Sunny Megatron, Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, John and Jackie Melfi of Open Love 101, and many more SDC contributors. You can check out my articles there too, SDC dc.com that's where you want to go so we were just talking about masturbation which seems to be one of my favorite topics <laughs> that conversation about one of your earliest ever sexual or it's not even explicitly sexual when you're a kid you don't know what you're doing you're just you're you're feeling things you're you're exploring yeah. your body you're just starting to learn about what's going on so you don't know that if you're in public that you know for example touching your genitals might not be a socially acceptable thing the unfortunately the way a lot of kids learn that it's maybe not socially acceptable to do that is by having their parents say don't do that that's bad that's wrong so instead of hearing hey, that's something you should do in private, Yeah, that it's just not something that most people do publicly, they hear, don't do it. It's wrong. It's bad. Exactly. So they think it's bad. You're bad. Or you're yeah. a dirty person or there's something wrong with you. You're a bad kid. And that, I honestly feel, is one of those experiences that can seriously carry over into later life with so many other things. How do you feel about that? Absolutely. You know, I think when we talk about trauma and how it affects us, some people have, you know, what I would call big T traumas. And I don't want to minimize that. So like sexual abuse, recurring verbal abuse, emotional abuse, that kind of thing. For many people who have internalized shame, we have maybe even a small T trauma, right? We can just recount a moment where we were scolded or publicly humiliated um, or told a no in a very stern way. And we interpreted that as we are bad. Um, now, the exact example you're giving, I, I read it in an article somewhere. I, I wish I had the, the reference off the top of my head. But the author talks about uh, refining how she tells her daughter about touching herself. Mm-hmm. And so she says uh, to her daughter, you know, we don't play with our vulvas at the kitchen table, only in your bedroom or in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so what the author is kind of saying there is kids don't always know context. They don't know that you're saying, don't do this here because it's not appropriate socially for this context. They're thinking this whole thing is bad. I'm bad. My genitals are bad. I did a bad thing and I upset somebody I love. Like that's a lot of messages, right? Yeah. And so she suggests, just as you were saying, you know, like uh, there's a place for some of this and you, you know, it's not categorically a no. How can, I mean, <laughs> I love asking you how, cause there's so much to unpack in every <laughs> single question that I have, but yeah. as we're learning these different things and then we grow up and we're a bit older and we're like, why do we have all these convoluted ways of thinking? Why do we think yeah. we're slutty if I go and sleep around? Like, you know what I mean? Why is that uh-huh. a bad thing? Why is slut a bad thing? How do we start to identify some of these things that might be holding us back from exploring ourselves more? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And, and uh, you're right, it is big because shame, I think, I, I don't want to put it um, in, in like a very clear cut solid box because different things could trigger shame for different people and it can look different, you know, depending on your life experience. But I'm thinking about somebody who um, is very concerned with how they appear to their colleagues or their church community or, you know, a peer group. It's okay to care about what people think, but being over-concerned with it, maybe a bit obsessive, could be a sign that, you know, underneath it, you don't feel particularly of value. Mm -hmm. And so you want to perform that value all the time um, or prove it to yourself and other people. Uh, When I think about how uh, many people experience envy, when they hear about, think about, see other people's sexcapades, their sex life, you know, um, it's like a bit of envy is not bad, right? But I think this kind of toxic envy where you see somebody else doing something that makes them feel good, but you feel immediately inadequate, Mm -hmm. that kind of envy uh, that, you know, brings out a lot of toxic competition. To me, that's rooted in shame, right? You're not envious that that person got to have a lot more sex than you, you're probably envious because you have this idea that they can connect with their own body and other people and you experience some kind of blockage when you try to do that, right? Because otherwise you would go and do it too, Mm -hmm. um, right? But there's there's something that's a barrier. There's something that makes it difficult for you to do exactly what they're doing. And I think that envy is just a product of of the shame really, right? I also think about shame as um, our internal dialogue. So when you're talking about how do I identify if I struggle with shame, you know, if you do something incorrectly, but you harp on it, you replay it in your mind over and over, and you feel very exposed, and you feel humiliated, and you say negative things about your overall self-worth because you made a mistake, that could be a sign that you're struggling with shame, right? Do, do those examples make sense? Of oh, that? yeah. And I'm okay. like having a terrible flashbacks of when I was in, in grade four and asked out a guy and he said no in front of the whole cafeteria. And like, thank God, honestly, nothing ended up like happening with that because he's an idiot. But also, <laughs> no, I mean, moving forward now, I know in hindsight, but at the time I was... I was shocking. I took it shockingly well. It was all good and everything. But um, now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, maybe I wasn't all good about it. It didn't stop me, though, um, from asking out other people later. But I think um, I think that was my last, like, I'm going to ask out someone publicly experience. Right. <laughs> but yeah, no, you, you are saying a lot of things that are, um, are making a lot of sense. But what you're saying when you're also saying you're constantly trying to perform and prove uh, to yourself and other people mm-hmm. something that you're good, that you're, let's say, religious religious, that you're a good worker, that you're yeah. a good daughter or a or, or wife or husband okay. or partner or whatever that means. That is exhausting. It is. It is. You know, so this is like this toxic kind of shame, the one that's unhealthy, that drains you, that makes it difficult for you to connect with yourself and other people. But what you, the example you gave, you know, you ask somebody out in a public space and it didn't work out the way you intended. You didn't feel like you were overarchingly a bad human. You just learned, you know, this might be something I prefer to do with a bit more privacy. To me, that's, that's one, one of the few examples of shame being having a, a pro-social or positive force, right? Mm-hmm. You learned through just some mild embarrassment that, hmm, maybe there's another way to do this that protects me but also gets my needs met. 
right? Because it didn't put you off from asking out other people. So, you know, I think that's a very good example of how shame isn't always bad. Yeah. And I think that's actually, thank you for saying that because the way I'm saying it as well, when it comes to, you know, let's get rid of shame and let's do, let's be us. Let's explore, like I always say, our lexuality in the way that we want, right? To feel good and fulfilled, whatever drives us, whatever we want to do, as long as it's not hurting anyone, it's safe, you know, everyone's consenting go for it. That's what I'm all about. So when I talk about shame, I see that as being a barrier, but I love what you're saying because it doesn't yeah. always have to be one. Right. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> We're on the same page. We're on the same page. So on the flip side though, so yes. there are experiences that we have where we do experience like mild versions of shame. And you had mentioned before, so, you know, feeling shy, feeling embarrassed. These are little things that are all related to shame, but they're on smaller levels, right? Yeah. Can you go over that a little bit? I want to yes. talk about those different kinds of micro versions that some people might be like, I don't feel shame. Okay. Well, there, there are other emotions that are maybe synonymous that are maybe lesser versions of what I'm saying that could apply to people. Yeah. There's somebody by the name of uh, Dr. Jane Bolton. Mm-hmm. She's a family, a marriage and family therapist. Um, and I, I'll have to give her credit because I, I, I started to think about shame in different iterations after I read one of her articles. And she talks about shame being a social emotion. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about shyness, it only exists really in the presence of others right? This is why you can like dance and sing in the shower and it's no big deal. But if somebody else is around, you might, you know, you might feel a bit shy. If you, if you do poorly on a test or you don't win a race or you get a bad performance review, uh, you ask somebody out, you get rejected. You know, if you experience, if you're not experiencing this all encompassing um, inferiority, maybe you're just experiencing some discouragement, right? Which is about like temporary rejection or temporary defeat. She also talks about shyness as being similar to embarrassment, but embarrassment is more like just shame in front of others, right? And then to me, when I think about embarrassment, it's uh, like just something small, like picking my teeth in, in front of a mirror and then later re- realizing it's a two-way mirror. It's not like <laughs> the worst thing in the world. It's just not something I would have chosen to do in front of somebody else, you know? Mm-hmm. So in that case, I'm thinking about embarrassment as being a kind of shame but in front of others, right? Mm -hmm. If nobody else is there, I'm fine to do that. I think there's different contexts where we all experience a bit of performance anxiety. And I think stage fright, fear of performing, um, brings out self-consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And self-consciousness can can be a form of shame. Um, And don't get me wrong, you know, shyness, discouragement, embarrassment, self-consciousness, all of these can be, they can have a pro-social kind of function. They can, all, they can also be, like, they can also be negative, you know. I think inferiority, which I've mes- mentioned a few times, is what Jane Bolton, Dr. Jane Bolton talks about as the all-encompassing um, shame about the self. Other writers have also talked about shame as not just the experience we have right now between you and I, but it's also how we each might internalize the other person or the outside outside world's evaluation of us. So it's called internalizing the external gaze, right? Hmm. So I'm thinking about myself as a racialized person. I might start to think about my racialized body 
through the white gaze. So I'm thinking about how, you know, a white society and white people might evaluate me based on my race. They might not even say anything to me. They might not even be thinking any of the things I'm thinking, but just through socialization and my knowledge of like living in the world, I might internalize that gaze, right? And so therefore I'm internalizing what I think is somebody else's evaluation of me. And I mean, if I think that evaluation is negative, that could be damaging to how I see myself. Yeah. And also it has to do with the way you are then interacting with that person, because if you're imposing those views upon them, you're thinking, okay, well, they're going to see me this way. And then you're behaving maybe to counter that or in a way that you think if they were thinking that they might want you to interact with them, Mm -hmm. that changes your behavior too. Totally. I'm so (laughs) glad you said that. I mean, so many people who, uh, so I'm from Toronto, as you mentioned in my bio, where people say, oh, it's so hard to break into the gay men's community. It's hard to make friends and it's, it's cliquish. And I think, you know, they might not be wrong, but I'm thinking if people don't want to get to know you, it's not, it's probably not because you're a bad human. You know, it's more likely that it feels like too much of a risk mm-hmm. and they've had a lifetime of being evaluated negatively by other people. And so they're interacting with you in kind of a distant way, right? And part of that is, protecting themselves because people don't want to feel ashamed. They don't want to be rejected. They want to, they don't want to feel those things again. And so without realizing it, it's just embedded in their personality structure where they, they might be a bit cold or might have a bit of distance. Now, I think it, when people are struggling with a lot of shame, it can show up in some very, very specific ways. But maybe I'll hold off. Did you, do you want me to keep going with that idea? Well, I do, but I want to take a super quick break. But yes, I definitely do. And I think there are lots of other examples that we can talk about uh, related to that kind of behavior, that avoidant behavior and how that could really impact us in a lot of different ways in different spheres of our lives but great example and yes i want to continue so hold that thought (laughs) so coming up after this next segment we're going to be talking about how to handle all of this stuff and we're going to answer some of your letters to lexi but first i just want to invite you all all of you sexy globetrotters to fulfill your wanderlust with sdc travel where you can enjoy an adventure with other like-minded open couples check out our annual trip to greece where we'll be lavishing in the sun on the vibrant island of Crete. Indulge in the all-inclusive luxury event resort in the Mediterranean where you can eat, drink, bear your skin, swim, and play like Greek gods and goddesses. If you're seeking adventure and the erotic allure of hidden coves, naked beaches, and our SDC theme nights and playrooms, join us this May 2020 for our SDC takeover of Crete. Book your rooms now at sdc.com slash travel. So before we get to our letters to Lexi, let's talk about this a little bit more. So we were going over how, you know, people go to great lengths sometimes to eliminate or completely or reduce or minimize uh, their feelings of shame. And sometimes that comes out in avoidant behavior. So yeah, go ahead. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. Well, I think so in, in psychotherapy, you know, we think about this idea of defense mechanisms or defenses. And a defense is anything you do, whether conscious or unconscious, to create some distance between your very conscious present self and some kind of unwanted or uncomfortable feeling or emotion, okay? So if we are thinking about shame as largely unpleasant, something we don't really want to feel, um, we're going to defend against it. So what are some defenses for shame? You mentioned avoidance. So... You can avoid shame by having an overinflated sense of confidence, right? Now, 
it's tricky because confidence is important. Uh, people are drawn to it. You know, it's it's good. It's good in business. It can be good in bed. But I think you know a lot of confidence can also be a veil for shame, right? Mm. And I think about confidence that's not rooted necessarily in reality or that doesn't always have a lot of, how do I say this? I'm thinking about a kind of confidence that actually shows up as quite grandiose, right? I'm trying to avoid saying the word narcissism (laughs) because I know it's like (laughs) such a dirty word these days, but I am really thinking about how a person might see themselves as so great, you know, cocky, cocky. Yeah. I know all of these people. I do everything right. I can't possibly be wrong. Yeah. Like uh, I need, you know, people exist to kind of serve me or support me or it's people's job to support everything I say and do. Don't get me wrong. It's fine to have support and it's fine to be confident, but if it's a bit overinflated and it's grandiose, I think that could be a strategy to avoid any kind of shame. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who's that shame avoidant, that they're, you know, they're kind of grandiose or narcissistic, what's happening there is that, you know, they probably have a lot of trauma in their life and they're so afraid of being like exposed or found out. And so they do things, you know, unintentionally to intimidate other people, but they don't realize it's an intimidation strategy. But in being intimidating, they get to have uh, a lot of control over their social setting, right? Um, I also think, I, you know, I don't know what it looks like in every community, but I know in gay men's communities, I would argue that present day, there's a lot of uh, investment in uh, gym and, and, and body culture. And, yes. and again, like going to the gym can be a great thing for your, your, your life, your health, your mental health. But when we start to feel obsessive about the gym and we start to overinvest in something because we think that's all we're worth or we're going to, our entire being, our entire worth is dependent on this thing. That makes me think about shame avoidance and narcissism. Again, I'm investing in something very, very superficial to avoid feeling bad in any way. And it, it doesn't always work, right? Yeah. You, can have, you can have a, a like a normatively TV model body and you can still experience rejection you know like you can't ever escape feeling sad all of the time you know there's going to be sometimes that people just don't like you or they don't get your vibe and we have to be we have to learn to be okay with that right but if you you know if you've had a complex trauma history um shame avoidance might be uh your go-to without you realizing it and so if it's all unconscious it's hard to dismantle you know Oh, for sure. And I mean, (laughs) when it comes to sex, there are so many things, like you said, confidence can be a good thing, right? And it can. And I I like to think of myself as being very confident as far as, you know, my skills and also just the way I feel in my body and that I'm I'm comfortable exploring my body and other people's bodies and I'm comfortable having the conversation about it. So for me, that, that translates into sexual confidence. What sexual overconfidence might look like is, oh, I'm the best. I'm the, you know, I'm the best at this. I'm the best at that. So someone contradicting that in the future can make a serious impact on my self-esteem and my feelings of self-worth. Like kind of like what you you were saying, right? You're relying, everything is reliant on one thing, right? Yeah. 
And it, in a sexual context, it's so interesting. Like, it's hard to, like, I think people, if, especially if you're having sex in just a diet of two people, there's not a lot of comparison that can happen about, like, the chemistry and the entire experience. Yeah. You know, so uh, people who are really overly confident, they're basing it on not a lot. And I think it would make sense to be like, my dynamic with this person or my experience with this person is great. And my experience with somebody else could be not that great. And that has to do with both of us. It doesn't mean one of us is not manly enough or doesn't have great skills necessarily, you know? Mm, yeah. I think we paint ourselves into a funny corner when we, when we get into that. You, you use the word avoidance a few times. And so I just want to delineate a little bit. Oh, please. Thinking about the, the previous example I gave was a kind of shame avoidance that manifests itself as grandiosity, narcissism, or like an overconfidence, something that's impenetrable um, with not a ton of self-awareness that, you know, you could be intimidating somebody else or you could be uh, investing in something superficial because you don't feel confident about what's under that. But when you talked about avoiding approaching somebody, yes. to me, that sounds more like uh, a kind of withdrawal, right? So one of the ways you might defend against shame is to kind of retreat or withdraw, where you, you say to yourself, I'm not going to seek sex. I'm not going to seek relationships. And I, I actually think for a lot of people, their experience of dysthymia, sadness, depression can be a defense against shame. Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, there's lots of reasons. Let's say I was experiencing depression. There's lots of reasons I could feel depressed, you know, and it, you know, it could be chemical, it could be situational, it could be longstanding trauma, it could be so many things, but it could also be that a kind of depression helps me withdraw or facilitates my withdrawal from social situations. Mm -hmm. And that's my way of defending myself against having to experience shame. You know, because social situations I might have learned are the site where the embarrassment or the discouragement or the performance anxiety comes to be. So I think a kind of withdrawal or low mood, sadness, depression could also be a defense against shame. That is a very astute observation, actually. No, it's true. I, I really, I like that you're explaining that there's, I mean, there's more than one answer. There's so many different ways to get to the same results and uh, to the, sa the same kinds of feelings. In general, I think we're all pretty complex and we all deal with a myriad of social input, uh, internalized feelings that we've mm -hmm. been, you know, been bubbling up over for the years. So, I mean, right before we get to our letters to Lexi, I just want to ask you, how can someone overcome uh, some of those feelings that they're having? I mean, we talked about, you talked about big T trauma, their little T trauma. Let's yeah. talk a little bit more about little T trauma that is maybe a bit more common to most people, because I don't want to undermine the complexity of certain big T traumas that are, sure. uh, it's too much to unpack today, but we can do that in a follow-up. Um, yeah. But how can you overcome some of those feelings to start to live your best authentic life and start to explore things sexually maybe that you were always afraid of for whatever yeah, reason or another. Sure. So the question you're asking about uh, what can we do, it reminds me of um, the psychologist, Dr. Margaret Paul. She writes about shame in our attachment to control. And the way I understand it, it's a bit dense actually, but the way I understand it is that in our particular culture, when we feel bad, it makes us feel better to think that we're in control of that feeling. And so we want to take responsibility for feeling ashamed, right? Because then we think if I'm in control of it, I can change it. Mm -hmm. Now, this is what's challenging is that traps us, right? So if you're feeling bad, yes, it's not always helpful to blame somebody else or attribute it externally. 
But if you think everything is your fault, you're going to have a hard time having compassion for yourself. You're also going to do things like ruminate about how you could have been better. You might punish yourself. You might punish or attack other people. You know, you might, you might criticize everybody you meet. Um, and so I think punishing or attacking yourself, punishing or attacking others, if those are patterns you see yourself having, it's important to identify that because that might be you or a person trying to have control over their shame and making sense of it by, by allocating or attributing blame. Mm-hmm. So we can stop that and say, okay, this person made me feel bad and they're shitty for doing that. And I, it makes me feel bad and I need to have compassion towards myself for this thing that I'm feeling, right? Mm-hmm. And then think about how to move forward from there. I also think it's, uh, we have to be weary. If we think that we are living a very celebratory, liberated life. It's possible that we are. I think for a lot of gay men, in this, like in the context that I come from, I think a lot of us think like gay pride, for example, is this moment where we let go of the shackles of shame. Um, but I think shame leaves its imprint, right? Mm-hmm. And so it might show up when I, for example, we might think um, when I'm looking for partners, am I looking for people that look like me Or am I looking for somebody that I think has more power in the world who might be more celebrated, right? That's a moment where I have to kind of pause and interrogate what I'm valuing and what I'm celebrating. That's a key component to dismantling the shame, right? I don't have to date somebody that looks exactly like me. You know, I, you know, I could date a white person. I can date whatever. But I, you know, in the gay community, again, it's just like my reference point. I see a lot of people wanting to date people of a certain masculine presentation people who look a certain way and to me i'm like oh you must want a certain kind of proximity to power because you feel powerless that Mm. shame right so we have to dismantle that a little bit so it's a bit of a roundabout answer it's not like a clear cut like here's a to-do list (laughs) hopefully that helps us think about it a bit more it helps because you're also talking about self-awareness right so like That, I think, is the root of everything, is understanding, you know, when you're feeling a particular way, okay, take ownership of that. It's okay that you're feeling whatever you're feeling. Feelings are feelings. Feelings are feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And then kind of unpacking that. Okay, well, what contributed to making you feel that way? And then trying to understand what's going on uh, a little bit from that perspective. But yeah, having a better self-awareness, I think, is in daily life, I think, very important. Um, And especially is it when it comes to learning how to just be more authentic to live the life that feels right for you without feeling um, weighed down by the way other people feel about things um, and have taught you to feel about them. Uh There's a lot of unlearning that has to go into it. Yeah. That reminds me, on on like one of my final notes here, it makes me think about the fact that shame is a social emotion. Mm -hmm. And so the healing probably also has to happen in a social context. It really can't be something you do on your own in a gym or by just reading affirmations. It has to has to play itself out in a social context, right? So to me, that's like a trusting relationship, being with somebody who treats you well, and if they are activated or going through something, and that means they don't know how to treat you well, you can have a conversation about that. Give you a really quick example. In my last relationship, I remember my partner and I were hanging out with a cousin of mine, and um, she had, uh, she was giggling. She was laughing about something. And I laughed along with her. And I said, hey, you have such a funny laugh. Why are you laughing like that? Um, 
And, you know, my partner later said to me, he's like, you know, it's fine that she took it as a joke, but, you know, women are often regulated in this way by the public. They're told exactly how to behave. They're, they're told, you know, don't laugh like this. It makes you look ditzy and less intelligent. Do this, don't do that. And he's like, I wonder, you know, she handled it okay, but like you could be contributing to her shame. And I thought, wow. Wow. That is so important for me to think about. But then like we need a relationship where we can talk about that and you have to be open to being gently called out, you know, about, hey, you might be, you might be causing harm, you know? Yeah. And it's something to think about. I, I really, I haven't been socialized as a woman. Like I, I would not have thought of that. So it's very thankful that he pointed that out to me. Yeah, for sure. And those in our individual backgrounds, I mean, the way we were brought up, even, you know, whether it's a specific religious background or, you know, uh, relationship style, your sexuality, uh, your gender, yes. whatever. Um, yeah. I, I definitely can understand um, that there are different things that come with that. Those, those different rules that society has kind of prescribed for us in those roles right. that they think are socially acceptable. But I digress because I do want to get, uh, we don't have too much time. So I want to get okay. into at least one letter to Lexi today. Sure. And I'm going to go with the most complicated one because this one really struck me. During this little segment, if you guys don't already know, um, this is the time for me to give you the shameless, no bullshit answer that your friends might not have the titanium ovaries or balls of steel to tell you. No question is ever too taboo or queer or weird, so don't be shy. You can always... Email me, Lexi at SDC.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Lexi Silver. That's Lexi with an I, Silver with a Y. So this question is from Joshua R. And uh, it, this, is, this is a lot to unpack, but I'm going to, we'll try to, we'll do our best in the short okay. time that we have. I'm in love with my sister's long-term boyfriend and I did a bad thing. We were having guy time, in quotations, a few weeks ago, just the two of us, and ended up kissing each other. He started it. Last week, we were alone again and ended up fooling around. It was my first time with another guy and I loved it. He said he did too. He's been texting me about meeting me to do it again. Now I have no idea what to do. I've had feelings for him forever. I don't know if this is just a face for him or if he's bisexual or gay or what. I don't even know that answer from my own self. But I do but I know that if he loved my sister, he wouldn't cheat on her with me, right? I want to tell my sister keeping this secret from her is killing me because we're really close. But telling her would mean admitting to the cheating and also outing both of us as gay or bisexual or whatever and I am not ready for that. Any advice is welcome. Thanks. So there's like a lot going on in there. So I know that we're not going to be able to answer all of this right now, but as a starting off point, like we can just, let's start with the cheating part of it, which I think is a bit simpler to unpack than the sexuality part, which is, I mean, please, I'm, we're all still unpacking that throughout the course of our lives. Sexuality is fluid, right? So who knows? Um, But that's another thing. So the Mm -hmm. first thing is maybe stop fooling around with this guy secretly um, because you're, you know, you're contributing to a situation that is, it could be potentially explosive. So firstly, are you getting what you need out of this? It doesn't sound like you are at this point because you love this person and you're not getting necessarily exactly that from them right now. Then there's the whole thing that cheating is not really a good thing. It's wrong. Let's, let's say cheating with your sisters. So someone you love, who's close to you, who trusts you cheating with her boyfriend, your sister trusts you. And you would hope that theoretically, if the situation was reversed, you would hope that that would not happen. So just talking about the relationship you have with your sister, especially because you don't want to necessarily keep secrets from her because you said you are very close. I can imagine that you're feeling a lot of conflicting things. You're feeling maybe guilty for what happened because you said you did a bad thing. 
thing, right? Uh, you didn't say you're a bad person, but you said you did a bad thing, right? So that's, you know, you're feeling guilty. On the other hand, you love this person. There also maybe needs to be more communication maybe between the two of you, not physical communication, but verbal communication to see what's going on. Is he aware that you are actually in love with him? Is it in love that you're feeling? Is it maybe infatuation or lust or something? So there's maybe something to unpack there, not to race through this question, but talking to him about what does he want exactly from you? Like, what is going on here? Like, does he love you also? Is he coming to terms with the fact that he might want to be with a man or specifically maybe with you? Does he love your sister? What's going on in their relationship? So talking to him about what's going on, not being physical with him, and then Maybe hold off a second before you come clean to your sister, which I do ultimately think you should do at some point. But first, you need to work out all the stuff within yourself. First, work out the whole cheating part, love part, and everything with this guy. And then as it pertains to the way you're feeling, uh, whether you're not sure if you're bisexual or gay or what, pansexual, I won't say it doesn't matter. It does matter as part of your identity, but you can be exploring that throughout your whole life. Um, You don't have to necessarily label whatever it is that you're feeling. But you need to also talk to him before you talk to your sister, because if you are intending to out yourselves about the cheating then and it will automatically come as well the whole uh, conversation about your sexuality and what that means for your sister and her relationship and your relationship with your sister maybe think a little bit about how he feels about being outed in terms of his sexuality and how you feel about being outed about your sexuality when you're not sure yet if you are there so lots of thinking has to happen first and some communication with this other person stop cheating let's start with that that's a lot to unpack. I'm sorry, Raheem, what would you like to say to Uh, Joshua? It's a mouthful. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's super complicated, but one of the things that comes to my mind is Joshua has found clearly a certain kind of safety with this other guy that is making him feel like exploring his sexuality is possible, and he has to balance that safety with integrity and respect for his sister. And so I think, you know, similar to what you said, I think there needs to be a conversation between him and the other guy to just talk about, you know, like what is realistic and what is possible and why do they feel comfortable with one another? You know, I, I would guess that part of them both being not open or out about having a fluid sexuality, whether it's gay or bisexual, provides them a lot of safety, you mm-hmm. know? And so if person B wants to do that in the context of his current relationship with a woman, that conversation would look very different. It would be, you know should we open up? And even if we do open up, there might be rules. And likely the rules are you can't sleep with somebody in this close proximity to me, right? I think sometimes when people are trying to figure out particularly their their bisexuality, they might think about it as I have a certain group of people that I'm allowed to have sex with and another group of people that I can only have an emotional connection with. That could be part of somebody's development, but I also think that that can be, that can also be a bit of a lie. We tell ourselves to compartmentalize so that we don't have to be as accountable or as present in all of our interactions or encounters. And so that's not to dismiss the bisexual identity if it's there, but not to equate it with being non-monogamous. You know, I think like those are different, they're just different things. And so what we're talking about here is someone exploring their sexuality in a way that feels safe, but also the ethics of how they want to do that. I also think about, you know, having sex with other men 
if they're doing it beyond just one another, there's a lot of like, you know, there's HIV STI risks that then the female partner is being exposed to non-consensually. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not so cool. No. Um, yeah. So I think there's, you know, it, it just, it undermines her ability to have informed consent as well. Again, it's complicated. I can really appreciate what it's like to be a marginalized queer-ish guy who doesn't have a context to explore sexuality, but you don't want to explore your sexuality at the expense of somebody else's emotional and mental wellness, you know? Yeah, so it's you're right. It's a lot to think about. I think sometimes when we're in situations like that, we might also think this is the only person I could have feelings for or relate like a, a future relationship with. Yes. But that's maybe part of a, and it, I don't want to undermine it, but, but it, it might be part of a fantasy uh, or a story we tell ourselves because suddenly we think a thing is a thing is possible that we never thought was possible mm-hmm. before. It's, it's hard to contend with. So that's all I've got. <laughs> that's a lot. Um, and, and I mean, like we said, like we, we're going to probably have to do a follow-up podcast in some point in time to sure. uncover a little bit more about this because we could go way more in depth. But ultimately, thank you very much for sharing that with us, Joshua. I really appreciate the uh, the letter and uh, the time you spent writing it. And I hope that kind of helps for now. You're welcome to write me back if you'd like a little bit more in-depth uh, clarification. We can talk a bit more or uh, Raheem can help you out with that. So <laughs> actually, Raheem, so how can people reach out to you after this, um, find out about all the great things that you're doing and connect? Sure. Thanks for asking. Well, you can visit me on my website. It's uh, effectiveconsult.ca, spelled with an A. You can also follow me on Twitter at Raheem Thauer. Um, my Instagram is at Lady Adivan. And essentially, you know, you can contact me if you want resources, but also if you're listening out there and you want me to come to your city or local pride and do like a relationship workshop or talk about shame, body image, that kind of thing. I am available for that. I also do training for service providers around queer men's mental health. So check out my website, follow me on all the things uh, and we can be in touch. And you're such a great speaker. So I can't, uh, you know, you're, you're great at presenting and unpacking all the information. So yeah, definitely connect with Raheem. Yeah. And we're going to end up doing this again at some other time, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. That is it for this week. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget, you can learn more about sex, health, and relationships as you seek yourself, discover together, and create moments at sdc.com. Use my promo code 7070 to get two months free at SDC and try it out for yourself. Tune in Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America's Variety Channel for my next show. And you can get my podcast episodes on demand whenever you want them on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Google Play Music. Thanks for joining me, Lexi Silver, on Seek, Discover, Create. Until next time, stay lectual, people. Bye. We appreciate you joining us on Seek, Discover, Create, presented by SDC.com. Please join your host, Lexi Silver, on another erotic journey next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, may you enjoy exploring your sexuality. 